This show is brought to you in association with football charity, Football Aid. It's a charity very close to my heart and raises monies for diabetes charities. I'm on the board and at the moment we are running um, a special donation campaign. The campaign basically is to raise extra monies for Football Aid and obviously what's a very difficult time for a variety of charities in the UK and around the world. And the idea is to donate £10 by texting FOOTY, that's F-O-O-T-Y, to the text number 70085. That's texting FOOTY to 70085 to support a fantastic charity. I hope you will do. And this is only obviously for UK um, listeners. Thanks in advance. Evening, gents. Thanks, Miles and, and Jordan. Great to chat as ever with you. And yeah, on behalf of myself and Essen, it's yeah, brilliant to have you on. So for everybody that may or may not know Miles and Jordan and why we asked them to give some of their insights, let me give you a bit of brief background on each. So yeah, Miles, even though doesn't obviously work directly for a club, um, has fantastic industry insight, bearing in mind that he's the gaffer at um, Sports Interactive Games, director and exec producer of Football Manager on loads of charity boards, including War Child and Special Effect. And most importantly, has um, a cooking blog, if I remember correctly, based on um, on some of my views of your um, social profiles as well, Miles. And um on uh, Jordan's side, so I, I've met Jordan relatively recently, actually through Clubhouses um, is the truth, which has been brilliant for meeting new people. And um, I came across Jordan a while back, actually, um, from reading his brilliant four-part series in Sports Pro around club ownership, which I'd really recommend anybody to be able to have a have a watch. And also, I think you've done some podcasts recently for Sports Pro as well. And Jordan is an, an investor, minority and majority investor in a number of clubs, including Swansea, Dundalk, um, and most recently the the co-owner and managing partner of um, Helsingor, um, a Danish club. And what we, what Essen and I thought we would try and do for a bit, and then obviously open up the conversation because that's obviously one of the main benefits of um, of Clubhouse, is just to talk a little bit about Miles and Jordan's experiences, um, some of their insights, some of their ideas about where the industry is going. Um, but Miles, if I can, if I can first just turn to you on the not necessarily where it's going, but where the football industry has been with with all of your experience in the industry for a long period of time now. I was going to ask Jordan about um, some of the reasons why, based on his articles, why there's a current sort of flood of US, potential US investment um, into the EU football market. But in the past, based on your experiences, and it'd be interesting to see that, how that evolution has, has gone, you know, traditionally, in your experience, what were the reasons why people would want to get involved um, in football? Because it certainly wasn't for making money, and it may, may not be making for money in the, in the near future in any event, but, um, you know... What was the case and, and what is changing? I, I think, you know, when it comes to the financial side of things, um, the, the best way for a billionaire to become a millionaire is to buy a football club. Um, certainly, it's, uh, it's, it hasn't historically been a great way to make money unless you're doing leverage buyouts and, and things like that. I think, you know, historically... Um, and I think it's it's definitely changing now, but historically, ego has been a big reason why people have been buying football clubs. Um, I think now people are finding ways to um, 
to make businesses that actually work out of it. Um, and, you know, by, by ego, I'm talking at the, at the big level clubs with the smaller clubs. It could be just because they absolutely love that club and they want to be the custodian that, that moves that club forward or, or at least keeps it in the same, in the same position. Um, but with the amount of data that there is now in the game, um, there are ways to, to do it successfully. And I think Brentford's ownership are, are a fantastic example of that they have a rival club to jordan in uh, in denmark as well as having the the club here um with brentford and, and they're they're trying to do things the right way they've had decent budgets historically um from having a an, an owner supporter um as i as i call the people who support the clubs who buy who then buy the clubs um but they've been uh They've, they've built up a model of um, buying players who may be a bit unfancied elsewhere and, and massively boosting those players' profiles and their value and marketing transfers in the right way, marketing players out in the right way. Um, football is a very, very strange industry because a lot of the, a lot of the businesses, if, if you're talking about the clubs as businesses, they're being run as insolvent businesses and just hoping that someone comes along um, and buys one of their players for a lot of money. And it, it's why so many have struggled so badly um, during the pandemic, because they don't have the reserves to fall back on. Um, they require all the revenue to be coming in and um, aren't necessarily that forward thinking. And I think it's the same with Brexit as well, with with clubs in the UK people didn't um, or a lot of clubs didn't react to it early enough Brighton were incredibly clever I think with the way that uh, with the way they did a few transfers in the summer and they're another um, supporter owned club who who have a, a model that they're attempting to be sustainable um, but it it never ceases to surprise me with clubs in football how um how short term they are as businesses rather than um, rather than planning properly and a huge separation between the groups and the um, the clubs that are being run as businesses compared to the clubs that are being run from a an ego perspective or just to try and help them survive. It's a really interesting one, Miles, and you make a lot of points. And I'm going to come, Jordan, to you in a second, if that's all right. But it seems like a lot of what you're saying is sort of, um, to a degree, in the past at least, and maybe to some degree now, short-term, ego-driven, speculative, um, reactive, as it might um, necessarily be. Um, do you still see that, obviously, as a, um, a club outsider, but obviously with all of your connections, contacts, the people that you speak to in the industry... Do you find that that approach now has changed to a degree um, or is changing and, and or evolving or has COVID sometimes brought those type of things straight back into the into the forefront? In some cases, COVID has brought it into the forefront, but, you know, football as an industry is definitely changing. Um, and a lot of that is down to, to data. Ten years ago, we were working with no clubs. We've, we've got the largest database in football. Um, and we've got the largest scouting network in football. We've got over a thousand scouts around the world in um, in 
boutique countries and regions and that wasn't being utilized at all by clubs whereas now it very much is um so so things you know it, it's not just us it's also the likes of opta and, and huddle and the the other players in the market are becoming important because people have realized that to do well in football you've got to look at that extra 0.1 percent and just keep building on that time time after time to to keep moving forward because if you don't move forward it's guaranteed that somebody else is moving forward um so so yeah you know things things are changing and things things post the pandemic i think are going to change again in a big way and again brexit plays part of that in in the uk but if if clubs the 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 current situation right is horrible for everyone um with football clubs they've got no supporters coming into the ground and it's really hard for them to continue engaging with supporters in in the way that you can do when supporters are coming to stadiums um but the monetary the monetary situation that is going to happen post post the pandemic or during the pandemic and post the pandemic it's either the banks and the companies that are lending the club's money that are going to be in trouble or the clubs themselves are going to be working with smaller budgets and in a more sustainable way because they won't be able to carry on um, having the squad sizes that they've got and paying the players that they've got. So those that have got players under long-term contracts are looking for ways out but uh, out of those contracts but they're there's no market to sell players into at the moment so it makes it even more even more complicated when normally you know you might have a a british club would look to italy or spain or portugal or france to be selling players to those clubs are all looking to to move players as well um so that the market the market's in a bit of a stalemate position at the moment which which doesn't really help um it's not going to help the situation for people to get to get out of the the financial trauma, trouble that the pandemic has brought. Thanks for that, Miles. I think it'd be really interesting, Jordan, just to bring you on now because as we as we as Miles has sort of discussed, sort of historic reasons why clubs would be bought and 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 sold, and the historic rationale and and how those imperatives are changing and evolving in part you know i really enjoyed your four part piece because in one of the i think it was the first piece you're talking about for example one of the issues around the spike in us interest in eu football uh, european football generally i guess and it would just be great from um, your perspective obviously as a as a multiple club owner um just um, to give those insights as to, firstly, I guess, why has there been that US um, spike? And then obviously then speak about some of your, your own experiences too. Yeah, no, um, first off, I think I agree with pretty much everything Miles said right there in terms of uh, the state of the industry, the motivations of many ownership groups. I think he uh, he really nailed a lot of it. Um, you know, I think we're seeing, um, you know, I obviously wrote about this for Sports Pro, but I think one of the main drivers from American interest in European football is simply the relative undervaluation of these clubs compared to what a North American investor can get into. I think you have 
obviously um, a large pool of wealthy individuals in North America who want to invest in sports. And, you know, to get into one of the four major sports in North America, you're talking billions of dollars right now. To get into Major League Soccer, you're talking three, four, five hundred million dollars. To even get into Minor League Baseball, you're talking twenty, thirty, forty million dollars. So I think Americans are looking towards Europe and saying, you know, look, you know, the American group, for instance, that went into Spezia in Italy, well, for twenty five million euros, I could I can get into Syria. Now, of course, there's other pieces at play there in terms of I have no idea what their debt situation's like. You know, presumably you have to fund losses for the foreseeable future. But I think that's been the main driver. I, I do think it takes a certain type of investor from the American side to understand the risk tolerance of going into European football when it comes to relocation, uh, when it comes to the cultural differences. You know, I've wrote, written and spoke about all this kind of stuff. But I, I honestly think the main driver is just this kind of opportunistic kind of deal sourcing mentality from Americans. And of course, COVID has accelerated that, um, you know, Americans coming in and scooping up distressed clubs that are uh, having liquidity issues. So I think that that's a main driver. You know, it's a separate conversation if these American groups really understand what they're getting themselves into and understand how poorly run, you know, many of these clubs are, as Miles alluded to. So I think that's the main driver in my mind. Can I ask one point, and Essen, feel free to jump in because I apologise, I'm just monopolising this uh, the, this question conversation so far. But, um, you know, J- Jordan, what's your view on, I say the view of, of promotion, but the view of the value of promotion and relegation um, on the US side? Obviously, we're talking about closed leagues on, on, on the uh, US Atlantic side and very much open pyramid structures on this side. It obviously brings quite a lot of opportunity cost, risk and reward, um, how nuanced now do you think that view is on the, the the upside of promotion, but obviously the downside of if you're buying a big club, you're buying the the the, the relative value of those broadcasting monies and the, the the other types of revenue streams that come with it. I think very few investors, even up into the very sophisticated investors in terms of private equity, uh, understand the differences and the potential risk tolerance of a relegation for instance i do think the more sophisticated investors who are buying into smaller clubs for instance like what we've done in denmark uh you know you have an american group for instance that went into mallorca and got that club promoted a couple times um i think those groups understand the value add from coming in adding value both on and off the pitch and getting clubs promoted and how that can be financially lucrative obviously not easy but financially lucrative i think the challenge you have you know, let's take a Burnley, for example. American group came in there and obviously separate conversation regarding the way that deal was structured. But, you know, Burnley is a club that needs to stay in the Premier League for that investment to pay off. And I'm not 100% sure if that group understands the risk assessment in terms of if that club gets relegated. Spezia, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Parma in Italy, that's an American group came in and they're probably going to get relegated this year. So yeah, that's a 90 million euro club. I'm not certain that that American group understands how much that asset's going to depreciate going down to Serie B. Now, their response might be, we're in it for the long haul, we're in it for the next 10 to 15 years, and we'll eventually get back to Serie A, which is certainly a, a respectable model. But you know, obviously, it's also modeling out how much money it's going to cost you beyond COVID and normal operational costs to go down a division where your television rights get massively reduced to get back up. So to me, a lot of it comes down to the fact that, and Simon, or sorry, Miles alluded to this a little bit earlier, do these groups understand the financial models? Do they understand the business plan? Do they really, can you can you manage the risk factors, right? 
Um, and from my experience, not a lot of these groups actually understand what they're getting themselves into, unfortunately. Jordan, you just mentioned on that, is that because they don't understand the sport? Because obviously in, in North American sports, you don't necessarily have this concept of promotion relegation and that idea of losing out. Is it because they don't understand that concept of it here, which is if you go down, you lose hundreds of millions? It's not just yes. a case of... Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Else, right? I, think, I think every sport in North America, this, this doesn't exist in any form in North America. And you know, I've talked about this also. Like, we can You can talk about relegation on a piece of paper, but until you actually go through it, you know, for instance, I got a very small ownership stake in Swansea, and I was in Swansea in 2018 when the club was in the Premier League, and that season the club got promoted. And I'd like to say I'm as sophisticated, hopefully, as it comes when it comes to investing in European football. And even for myself, that was kind of a massive wake-up call to see what a relegation went through to the organization, you know, the club had infrastructure plans to expand the liberty that went out the window, the amount of television money that went down. So I don't think Americans, because they just don't have experience in North American sports on this model, really understand what it's like and what it does to the full array of the business, obviously, specifically on the commercial side, but like entirely, you know, everything from, you know, television rights to the fact that you're going to have to fire a whole bunch of employees because there's just not as much money coming in. Yeah. And to flip that, Dan, a question for you, because obviously we've been talking about the buying side from Jordan's perspective, right? But from a selling point of view, you just worked on the Wrexham deal. How how does that education process work from the selling side? Is it a case of, right, let's just sell this club and move on and hope no one kind of asks these tough questions? Or is it a case of you are getting asked these questions and you're trying to kind of best sell it in that, no, we can't fall out of the Football League or this, that and the other? Yeah, no, thanks for that question, Essen. I mean, um, I've been lucky enough to work on both sides of deals. So, it, yeah, it's, it's in the public domain that, that Sheridan's and myself worked on the, the other side of the, um, yeah, Ryan and Rob deal, which was which is just fascinating in lots of respects, I, I guess. And, and, and Jordan had, had written about this part to a degree, and I'm not really saying anything that's not there in the um, in the public domain. But, you know, the, there's different motivations, as we talked about, you know, Wrexham being a non-league club, um, there was still going to have to be due diligence done on um, on the club to work out, you know, liabilities and to work out revenue streams and to work out, you know, um, you know how how the club was being run more generally because you know ultimately there's going to be different motivations of how things are going to work in that instance. I guess it's going to be. Um, something around a, a big content play and um, documentaries and hopefully a bit of a rags to riches story and we worked quite closely with the, the trust for a long time to try and get that deal over the line in the same way that I've worked by side on a number of um, championship and Premier League teams over the, the years and obviously when we're talking about much more significant sums um, you know there are valuation issues there are liability issues um, there's um, revenue issues there's transfer fee monies um, delayed um, securitized or otherwise um, historic disputes and all the type of things that actually I mentioned in the book quite a bit um, in Dundee but also just just more generally and and I'd, I'd just be fascinated Miles maybe on on your view of that on that and then maybe coming to, to Jordan as well which is you know I'm I'm fascinated from your point of view when you're chatting to owners and and hearing conversations and stuff generally, Miles. Which is, you know, how how in your experience do club do, do, do owners think about their own club value, 
um, because obviously it's not quite as simple as, well, we've got this amount of revenue, consistent revenue coming in year after year. Um, and we're not quite sure about commercial stuff and we don't know how player trading is going to come. But, you know, the valuations of Premier League clubs and pretty, um, bo- you know, bottom half Premier League clubs are still pretty significant, regardless of whether they align to, um, you know, the US types of models. Um, where where are you with trying to rationalise what a club might be valued at, depending on the league that they're necessarily in? I'm not sure if you have a view on it or not, but... I think the valuations of football clubs um, are whatever the owner wants for them. Um, there, there isn't a financial model um, that you can that you can look at and work out the value of of clubs because of all the different indices that that there are in there. So, with people that I know who want to buy into football clubs, and they they turn around to me and go, you know, what about this club? And it's like, well, what's the price? And they tell you the price and go, well that price is okay based on the value of the players if they can still stay in that league but how much more money is going to go in and most clubs are so full of debt um that their financial reports are actually pretty scary things pretty you know pretty scary things to go through and there's also not a lot of planning so you know what jordan was saying about about relegation um it's not just american owners who don't necessarily understand that um, I can't go into the specifics because it will be too easy, too easy to guess. But there are there are some clubs that I've I've worked with pretty closely over the last few years, and you turn round to them when they have gone down and go, right. So what are you going to do now? And they go, well, we didn't think we were going to get relegated, so we don't have a plan. And then you sit there and you do a plan. Um, and I've I've done these plans for them of going right. So you need to raise seventy million pounds. Here's, here's how you do it. And they go back and go, yeah, but we don't want to sell that player. And we think this player is valued at four times the price that you're saying this player is is valued at. So um, it, it's the... That that lack of planning means that football clubs are basically worth someone what someone is prepared to, to pay for them. Um, so when people are going around and looking at clubs and at the moment... There's, there's never been a better time to, to buy into a football club because the clubs need money. Um, you really need to shop around and turn around and just say to them, right, you know, what do you value it at? Um, because unless the club is is on the stock market, it's valued at whatever the owner, whatever the owner wants. I think it's funny you uh, you brought that up, Miles, because this club we bought in Denmark. Uh, that was about to get relegated when we bought it. All I heard from the prior ownership of the club is, "We're too, we're too good to get relegated. It's not going to happen. We're too good." And then what happens when they get relegated? It was like exactly what you described: absolutely no planning whatsoever, no strategy, no budgeting, um, and you're just kind of, you know, freaking out basically in terms of understanding what this effect is on the organization. So, yeah, that that does not surprise me whatsoever. Um, I think it's funny. Uh, I get asked all the time about valuations of clubs and how do you value it, value clubs, especially since many European clubs don't own their their own stadiums. You know, so you're so you're right. You're you're trying to figure out the value of the players because beyond that, what assets are you actually buying? Right? You don't you know, unless you own the training facility or you own the stadium, you're not actually buying any you know, concrete assets. So we joke that you can put a blindfold on and throw a dart at the wall, and that's the best way to value a football club. But um, <laughs> Other than that, I think from my perspective, it's no different than like valuing a house, right? You just look at comps 
you say, okay, this is what other clubs over the last 12 to 18 months have sold at in this particular level. They're reasonably similar to the club we're looking at, so that's the ballpark range. But beyond that, it's uh, it's exactly what Miles said. It's whatever the owner wants. And I think it's – I would actually be really curious what you guys think up here on this on this panel about um, about League One. There's an American group that's been rumored to uh, be buying Ipswich. Whole uh, City supposedly is for sale. Obviously, Charlton got sold a couple months back. And I, I see the valuations coming out of some of these EFL leagues as, as crazy to me. Uh, Ipswich, for instance, has been reported that the valuation is – somewhere between 25 and 40 million us which that just kind of blows my mind for the business model in league one but i'm kind of really curious what you guys think on that miles i'm not sure if the way that you want to go first or not but i i was just going to maybe mention one thing which is i know um well in everyone's experience generally a lot of the time i almost think it comes down to sort of economics of sunken cost theory which is how much in a way it's sometimes like how much has the owner actually put in and how much they want to get back? And also, not necessarily just that, but also like what was the valuation when they were in a higher league, which they didn't take or decided not to for whatever reason, which means that from a um, uh, exactly from a comparative perspective or from um, uh, some type of heuristic perspective, it's like, oh, well, we, we've got to take this amount minimum because we didn't accept this or because I've invested this amount in already and I need to get my money back. And um, I'm not saying that's the, 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 the way that everybody does, but I think it's sort of human nature to a degree to be like, well, I can't be taking a massive loss here, even if the owners are writing off certain loans and monies as it, as it might be. I would also really quickly chime in and say the, the clubs aren't particularly liquid either. So it's not like you decide one day uh, that I want to sell and you can sell the club a week later. Like there, As you know, uh, Dan, there's so much that goes into buying and selling a football club. It could take months, if not longer. So I think that factors into in terms of you need to have some sort of long-term strategic planning if you do affirmatively make that decision you want to sell a football club. Um, you know, you, you use Ipswich as the example there, Jordan of 25 to 40 million, and the owner there has put quite a lot of money in. Um, they are a League One club now, but historically they've been in, in the top flight. Um, they're seen as a, as a, as a bigger club for League One, particularly as in their catchment area. They have Norwich, but they don't have that many other clubs. Um, so 25 to 40 million US doesn't sound um, outrageous from the perspective of what the club owner would want for it. But from a business perspective, um, you know, if you look at the books and they're losing money every year and at least they've got some kind of financial caps going on um, in that league now to to try and stop losing as much, then, then yeah, the, the, the business isn't worth that much. But if, if you look at the industry that I mainly work in, in the games industry, the valuation of businesses at the moment in our industry is utterly insane. Um, <clears throat> to the point, like we, we sold about 15 years ago now, um, and we're making similar levels of profit now to, to what we were then, probably a, a, a bit more. Um, the valuation of our business now would be probably 10 times what we sold for then. Um, just based on where the investors want to put their money. So if someone's buying Ipswich for, let's say, let's say 30 million, and they can get Ipswich back to the Premier League, that's an incredibly good deal that they've done there. If they buy Ipswich for that amount and they stay in League One forevermore, 
then it's a ridiculous amount of money. Um, but I think when a lot of investors are coming in, they believe that they can all take the clubs back up to the promised the promised land of the Premier League. There can only be 20 teams in the Premier League. And once you're out of the Premier League, it's very hard to get back in there. Um, so you, you can come in with the best plan in the world and still not be able to get out and get up. And that's that's why I look at, at Brentford's model as being um, one of the most sensible ones out there. That if if they get promoted, which they will do at some point, then they are in that in that promised land. But if they don't, they've made sure that they keep having assets that are coming through that they are buying for a smaller price that they're able to sell for more whether that be um whether that be the two players that they sold in the summer um that they brought in the difference between being in the championship and being in the premier league from a financial perspective or whether it be going and signing a player for five million in the summer who's now worth a load more money than that um already and you know if if a club getting promoted to the Premier League of Brentford don't don't get up there this season. We'll probably pay twenty million for that player um, when they go up. So, um, so they're they're planning well. Ipswich are probably going to be relying on young players coming through in that catchment area, but the valuations don't make sense based on the books. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the chance that I have wrapping my head around the Ipswich, the Ipswich kind of play is just. You know, do they understand how difficult and how much money it would take to potentially get to the Premier League? You know, it's uh, we both know how difficult the championship is. To get up two times is just going to be crazy. And I completely agree on Brentford. You know, it's a team that sold 60 million pounds worth of players, and I think they're a better squad this year than they were last year. So it's pretty remarkable what they're doing. I think my point that I make to this is it's not based off of obviously complete ownership but when we were talking to Forest Green Rovers for about a year before Hector invested into them we came at it, at it from like a business perspective in terms of yes there are values aligned but let's look at it from a business perspective this isn't uh, an American billionaire where you can kind of just spare cash and do something for the motivation of it but we're still looking at it from a business decision and Jordan and Miles both spoke about planning and having plans and their plans are to get to a certain level within a certain amount of years but it's not all make or break based off of being at that end goal the business is still kind of financially stable and still operationally stable between between the lines of where they want to be and where they are today and i think sometimes it comes down to that element of communication with the people that who hold the majority shareholding if, if you're coming in as a minority shareholder to understand exactly where they want to go, how they're going to get there and what are going to be the steps along that way. And I think it comes down to the planning point. If you sometimes come in at that championship or Premier League level, in some in some way, shape or form, the only way is down. It, there's not many scenarios where you see someone come in and they kind of take it onto a whole new level unless you come with serious cash like the Man Cities of, or the Chelsea's of this world, right? But if you're coming in from a lower league perspective, it's understanding that you're not going to make it to the Premier League in five years. You're not going to make it to the Champions League in 10 years. It's kind of coming in with realistic expectations. I think sometimes that's where it kind of probably goes wrong. As you guys were alluding to with the Ipswich stuff, if someone's coming in to buy it for 25 and think that they're going to be in the Premier League in five years and their club's going to be worth 200, then obviously 
just like any business decision, you're probably coming in completely blindsided. Essen, with with the deal with um, Forest Green, Rovers and, and Hector, was that also partly um, Hector's brand that came into play there? Because, you know, Hector, um, from from personal experience, from talking to him, I know that he, he doesn't just talk the talk when it comes to trying to be eco-friendly. Um, he is, um, he's very, very well read on the subject he knows what he's talking about um but that has become part of his brand and forest green have that as part of their brand as well so there's good brand synergy there and um, did that come into play at all in those conversations or was it purely a business-based decision i'd say the first motivation decision was brand play from both sides forest green rovers knew that they were only able to take their brand so far from a PR or commercial or brand awareness perspective. So he brings a certain level to that. And likewise, for him, like we've got a, a, sustainable, a sustainability focused investment company and those type of businesses fit because of who he is, what he kind of believes in and kind of the direction he wants to go in. So I'd say motivation number one was brand play. Motivation number two then was, okay, this is a financial play also because you're putting in money. You don't want to lose it all and trying to make money out money back from it so I think it allowed us to come in with a more holistic and kind of forward-thinking approach rather than just straight I'm investing this I expect to make this back I think like you said Miles in the first question if you come in to to football trying to make money you're probably going to lose it all so come in with different intentions but make those intentions pure just to qualify what I said earlier as well, there is a way to make money out of football, but you've actually got to come into it with a plan. And that plan has to be tailored to the particular club that you're looking at, because there, there isn't a one-size-fits-all scenario. So if you're buying a club that is maybe a little bit smaller, then you need to be properly community-focused um, and be needing to look to be bringing the best players from that local community through. Um, that's a very different play to to trying to do the rags the rags to riches story and um, you know it, it, the 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 recent Wrexham deal is also really interesting um, because you've basically got a situation there where you've got two people who've bought into a club on the basis that they think that there are other ways to be able to to bring money in that aren't being exploited well enough at the moment. Um, they've spoken about the documentary publicly with the way that they're doing that. And I think it's an incredibly, an incredibly smart move. But there are so many clubs out there that they can't all, they can't all do that. Um, so being, being selective with the way that people are, are looking at them um, is definitely a smart way to do it if you're not just doing it from that, from that ego perspective. Can I ask Jordan just um, uh, on, on almost that same point, which is having a plan and having experience and um, understanding the market and understanding the club from from our conversation so far, and then reading obviously the pieces that you've you've written. It sounded like what you did in a way was a, a softly, softly approach, which was and correct me if I'm wrong, which was gain some experience at the day to day. Um, um, 
in Swansea and, and Dundalk to a degree and then come in almost more full throttle on um, Helsingor so that you, you would have you, you've, you've done the groundwork you've understood different ways of working and granted there are huge variances um, in clubs in different countries but at the same degree um, those experiences then helped massively in then your more hands-on role with um, with the Danish club yeah, exactly. That's been exactly my strategy. Um, you know, I had heard and known enough horror stories from American groups in particular that have gone into European football and really uh, not understand not understood what they were getting themselves into. So for me, it was about learning. You know, I, I feel like you know I do have a strong business background. I know sports in North America, but I knew that coming into European European football was going to be a very different beast. And so for me, it was very important to learn. And even spending a lot of time on the ground with Swansea, with Dundalk, and then we did make our majority investment in Denmark, the first year still was a massive learning curve for us in terms of all the different things that went into actually controlling a European football club. And I'll give you guys a really brief example. There's a group uh, out of Switzerland that actually just bought a club in, in the fall uh, in Denmark, and they have a couple of their clubs. They own Clermont in League Two in France. And... Um, I know those guys pretty well, and I met up with their sporting director when we played uh, the team they had just bought in Denmark in September. And this had been about a year and a half after we had gotten into Denmark. They had just bought their club like two weeks before. And you could just see the look on the guy's face. He kind of had this deer in the headlights. Like, this guy, and again, he's, he's not American, he's European, but he had no idea what he was getting himself into in terms of specifically Danish football. And that team has really, really struggled. And I kind of looked at that and said, wow, that must have been what I looked like a year and a half ago, right? So now um, I feel like the, the experience level is there. So tomorrow, if we put a group together and bought a team in the EPL, yes, it would, there would be differences and there would be challenges, but everything we deal with at FC Helsinger is probably not that different than what uh, Burnley deals with in the English Premier League. It's just at different scale, right? So I think that's, for me, what's been really important. I realize not every group has the time and energy to take to really learn on the fly and, and soak up all the information as much as as much as you can and of course we've made mistakes along the way but i think that's so incredibly important and it goes to what miles was saying about having a plan and a strategy this business is so incredibly difficult to begin with and if you don't kind of do everything right and take a really humble approach you're just not there's no way you can set yourself up for success right to me if you're a group that comes in and buys an ipswich like to me it's a you're in a no-win scenario. Unless you magically get the club promoted twice, you're going to lose a ton of money and you're going to have a ton of challenges. And I just didn't want to be that kind of guy. A very interesting point there, and I, I can I can completely I can completely see that. Um, Miles, just and and just whilst I ask the question as well, if anyone has any particular burning questions to ask, um, you know, Essen, Miles, uh, Jordan, we're going to try and have about another twenty minutes or so, but. Miles, if I can just turn to you just for a second, and then obviously it'd be great to ask Jordan the same question to a degree, is based on all the modelling that you've done, I know for the game on, on the Brexit side, which obviously I know you did some, um, made some fantastic submissions, I believe, um, to, to various stakeholders. Um, but also on the broadcasting side, I almost think that this is now coming back into focus, especially EPL side, is that at least my understanding is from the reports is that the, the Premier League isn't going to go to market for the for the domestic rights until after the end of the season, um, which isn't unheard of, but is is more unusual, um, I, I guess, for lots of different um, value and uh, process reasons. But from your perspective, Miles, and obviously the game's perspective, have you modelled different scenarios around 
or your own experiences or opinion about what you think the domestic and overseas um, EPL rights are going to do um, over the next few years, bearing in mind COVID, bearing in mind Brexit, bearing in mind, you know, maybe oversaturation of a lot of games more recently. Do, do you have any, f- f- you know, thoughts, feelings, g- general general ideas as to what, what might happen? So we've both modelled it and I've got personal thoughts. And if it doesn't drop by a third or more then the person at the Premier League who is doing these deals, one, needs to be knighted and two, should be made Chancellor um, of the Exchequer in the UK Um, because there is less money around um, because of COVID. Um, Other leagues are doing incredibly well um, at the moment with, uh, with their branding. But with with Brexit as well, and to be fair to the to the FA and the Premier League, <clears throat> they made they made some tweaks to the Brexit stuff um, later on, which is definitely going to help still being able to bring um, still being able to bring players through. Um, but there was a stage <clears throat> where uh, where Brexit was looking like it was going to really harm the players coming through, which would have damaged um, the the brand um, of the Premier League because the best players in the world wouldn't be playing here. And that would have hurt things a lot more. But as it is, I don't think... No one that I speak to thinks that the thinks that the deals are going to be higher next time round. And a lot of um, a lot of the people who buy collective rights, so the, the companies that will buy rights for a bunch of clubs and then uh, for a bunch of countries and then sell them on, um, are also in are also in trouble. So, I think the US sports has m- most of the the US sports organisations are so far ahead um, when it comes to that side of things with the uh, with the apps that they've got. Um, I can subscribe to an NFL app here and be watching more games here than people are able to watch in the US in the same way as people are able to watch more. Um, more EPL games in the US than they are here but there's there's been so much football on TV during um during the pandemic and one of the issues that that people saw firsthand happening is when the games that weren't part of the TV broadcast were going to be moved to pay-per-view so that people could still pay to go and see them the outcry from that um which in a lot of places was in a lot of cases was right some of it i didn't agree with but the outcry on on that for for the people that i didn't agree with was well i've now got used to watching all of these games at home so i want all of these games at home forever as part of my existing subscription so the league are now going to have to decide in a post-brexit world is is do they make every game available And if they do make every game available, is that the way that they're going to be bringing in the same revenue that they were getting before domestically? Um, Because I can't see people paying more for it. And and I can't, whilst whilst there's a big battle for eyeballs going on at the moment with the likes of Netflix and Amazon and Disney Plus and, and Apple TV, are those companies already building big enough war chests to go and able to be buy to be buying these rights has it worked on amazon have amazon been getting the viewing figures that justify um justify them steaming in 
with with higher values. So I I can't see the money staying the same. Um, I can only see it going downwards next time around. Yeah, I think people in and around football sometimes think that these media companies and certainly the tech companies have unlimited amounts of money to throw at live sports. And clearly these companies are not stupid and they're seeing the landscape and they're understanding that they need to be strategic. I mean, we'll see about Amazon and if they how they jump more into the live sport. But I agree. I I think you're seeing what's happening in some of these leagues. While some of the media rights deals are staying somewhat stable. I mean, France, right? It's a mess. Um, I, it's, it's tough for me to see uh, these new media rights deal not being a reduction, if not staying flat. But again, that's not necessarily my wheelhouse. I, I maybe ask just Jordan from your perspective as well. Um, I'm, I'm really interested, Miles, that you think deal is going to go down by possibly a third or um, or, or, or even more, um, bearing in mind, you know, some BT and Sky issues and obviously then the overseas deal. Um, to, talking to Miles's point about US sport being um, superior in terms of OTT, in terms of tech, in terms of um, cord cutting, perhaps, um, uh, and in terms of, I guess, much longer term deals, one of the issues with the Premier League's always had with the European Commission, for example, is they've only been able to do three year deals, which obviously means you've got to have quicker turnaround on the deals and the tender processes, etc. Whereas US deals have been considerably longer because of the lack of antitrust types of um, issues. Um, Jordan, just based on your experience and uh, on the US side, if, if, if you have those insights is... Do, do do US sports and broadcasters slash um, platform owners have those same types of concerns, or is it because they're 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 in in a longer in a longer term way that there aren't the same short term types of issues that the EPL or Champions League might have? No, I think the same issues are coming up. I think what's interesting is particularly in soccer in the US, you're seeing the landscape being really fragmented from a media perspective. So you have, you know, NBC Sports has the Premier League rights, but they've transitioned a lot of their uh, games over to Peacock, which is like their streaming service. Uh, then you have ESPN Plus, which has Syria and some and some of the Bundesliga, you know, BN Sports. So it's such a fragmented space where a football supporter like myself, if I want to come in and watch football on a Saturday morning, I have to subscribe to about five different OTT services to get any of the games legally. So I think that's the problem for the future of North American media rights from an OTT perspective is figuring out, can we centralize this? Because people eventually, if they haven't already, are going to stop and just not be willing to subscribe to so many different services. So that's the thing I see from my perspective. I also think a problem you're seeing over here is from some of the leagues who've made poor decisions with partnerships in terms of media rights. So I'm looking at uh, La Liga, who has a, who's had a multi-year deal with BN Sports here in North America. And BN Sports has had some carrier issues with some major providers in the United States. So, for instance, I, I have cable here in the U.S. and I can't legally I haven't been able to legally watch a game in La Liga for two years because it's not been on my cable provider. So I think some of the kind of short term thinking from these leagues saying we're going to take the biggest check we can find versus where is our league going to actually be accessible? How is it going to actually grow the sport in North America, especially a landscape that's so oversaturated? Right. I can watch about 10 different leagues on a Saturday morning with all these different games going on. So. I think it's a little bit of a different set of challenges for these for the for these providers in these leagues in North America, but same kind of stuff is going on. Can I switch just track a tiny bit um, and based on some of your both experiences on um, multi club ownership uh, type of issues? 
Miles, you touched on the Brexit stuff and obviously be keen, Jordan, on your view as well. Obviously, one of the major benefits now of at least two um, clubs that have um, uh, ownership te- have teams in the UK and then in particular types of European jurisdictions is, um, you know, those Belgian clubs, those Portuguese clubs, those Spanish clubs, those Italian clubs, wherever it might be, um, still obviously within the EU and can um, bring in any EU players, which is something now obviously that um, UK clubs can't, bearing in mind obviously there's a, a work permit regime. Um, Miles, how much of an advantage do you think that actually is? I know I don't want to just use one factor as Brexit as um, a benefit of multi-club um, ownership, but how much of an advantage do you think that is for ownership groups that can use that to their, I, I guess, competitive and financial advantage? As a Watford supporter, uh, I, you know, selfishly, I really like the advantage that uh, that we now have that we would be able to go and buy a player. Um, from a country that can't get a work permit and they go and play for Udinese for a couple of years um, and then are able to get one. Uh, I think the City Group have played it perfectly from both a commercial perspective and from a um, and from a club possibility perspective. Uh, with, you know, if you look at Aaron Moy um, and the way that they, they marketed Aaron Moy effectively, um, to be able to get a, a a better a better deal in the long term was was incredibly smart. With with Brexit coming in, there are advantages for those clubs. Where where it hasn't worked out is actually for people who've invested in um, in Scandinavian clubs because it's now harder to get a work permit from those clubs than than it was well when we were part of the EU, those players could just move over freely. Um, But I fully expect more clubs to be looking at doing it, particularly those who've got owners who are making long-term plays. Uh, They're probably going to need to start investing in in clubs in uh, in other European countries uh, or even South American countries where it's possible to to place players to them and be able to bring them through. At the moment, though, you still you still have a problem with multi-club ownership that those clubs can't play against each other. So you have to be pretty careful about which leagues you are um, you have those clubs in because if both of those clubs get into European competition at the end of the season, that could be well, that will be problematic. Um, so you can't have too much success. So whether the supporters of the clubs in those groups are happy with playing second fiddle to to what's seen as the the parent club is another story entirely, and that that's something that um, if people really care about the supporter base, that they've got to be very careful about. Yeah, I'll jump in real quick. I definitely think it's a competitive advantage, especially the groups that have the infrastructure in place already. Right. So, I mean, obviously Watford and AC, uh, the guys at Barnsley, that American group, you know, they have uh, a club in Belgium, a club in France. So they're already kind of uh, two steps ahead of the game. I'm not necessarily concerned per se about the issue of the clubs running into each other in European competition. I think most of the groups that do target secondary clubs in Europe are doing it to, for medium to smaller size clubs, just strictly for player development. Um, 
so yes, of course, the, the scenario could come up where they could meet in Europe, but you know, Barnsley, for instance, is unlikely to ever be in Europe. Um, I think the club those guys have in Belgium theoretically could make Europe, but it's probably unlikely. So yeah, I agree uh, with everything Miles said. I think it is, you know, groups are going to have to be more sophisticated when it comes to Brexit. You know, Brentford, we've talked about Brentford and super well-run club. They've used that kind of um, the EU scouting networks to their advantage in Scandinavia and Eastern Europe with their B team. What are they going to do now? You know, they have Michelin in Denmark, very well-run club. How are they going to adjust their business model? Because otherwise, right, you have to pivot in terms of, you know, figuring out what your domestic recruitment is within the UK. And you know, do you have a strong academy? You know, what are your other kind of competitive advantages? Because, again, every other club in the UK is trying to do the same thing you are. Guys, I've just brought um, Anand into the, the conversation and great to have you back on with us. Um, yeah, feel free to ask the question. Hello. Thanks so much, Daniel. Firstly, I just want to say, SN, thank you so much for organizing this. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I've been sitting quietly and listening and learned a lot. And Miles, Jordan, your insights are incredible. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to chip in with, and ask a question, really, probably to both Miles and Jordan, um, in terms of the broadcast rights that you were talking about. And it's interesting to know that you're saying you can see it go down by a third, potentially, for next year. And the thing that resonated most with me was when you talked about having to subscribe to so many different channels or platforms in order to actually consume all the matches, even if it is just from one league, right, within the UK. Now, I come at this from the point of view of somebody who grew up watching the Premier League back home in India, where it was all on what's essentially cable, and it was all on one channel, so one place rather, so you didn't have to have multiple subscriptions, you could just go in there, pick channel A and watch match A, channel B to watch match B, and you literally got to watch a lot more than people in the UK could. Now... That obviously raises the question, I think, Jordan, you said about the short-term thinking of the biggest paycheck versus what's going to give us the maximum reach. And especially when we are talking about overseas deals, isn't would there be value in accepting a lower uh, paycheck, so to say, even if it is down by a third, let's say, and then potentially monetizing that audience base that you're tapping into. So almost think Amazon, you know. The way Amazon are rolling out live sports is to get everybody onto Prime and then hoping or offering things so that these people then go and buy other stuff from Amazon. So you are monetizing them long-term, lifetime value. So is there a value in doing that? Because I don't know where it is with the Premier League's OTT offering. I've not really heard much about it, but I know about this time last year, there was a lot of buzz around that. So is there a case where you go wide for a lower initial payment, uh, capture all of these people, and then monetize them with the OTT offering? That's me on and them done. So for that to be able to go ahead, I, I completely agree that that's a, a really good thing to look at. For that to be able to go ahead, you need 14 out of the 20 Premier League clubs to agree that that is the way forward, to be taking less money to be able to build up the audience in the longer term. And getting those 14 clubs to all agree it when they're coming at it from from different business models is always going to be difficult. 
So you spoke about India there, Anand, and, and at, at Watford we um, we had a strategy um, a strategy team that was headed up by a guy called Spencer Field, and um, Spencer saw India as a as an absolute key market because there were certain parts. You know, India is such a massive country that there are certain parts of India um, that are already tied up by the major clubs. So. Um, Pune, for example, already has a large supporter group for um, for one of the, the big six. But there are so many other places that they could go. So Watford spent a lot of time and um, actually got involved with a couple of, of schools out there providing them sports equipment to try and get them to play football rather than um, rather than playing cricket or kabaddi or whatever the other sports they were doing. Um, to try and build that market up in in the long term, um, and it ended up when it was Diwali. Watford had a special Diwali celebration um, because they knew that that game was being broadcast to fan parks in India, and it was a very deliberate move to try and market to people there um, to to try and get a Watford supporter base in in that country. But it. it having that kind of outlook requires long-term thinking and long-term strategic planning rather than just looking at the bottom line for that next season. And because of the way the clubs are run and because of the um, that lack of planning at some football clubs, that lack of long-term view that they're only looking at that next season, it makes it very difficult for for the Premier League to be able to turn around and go, okay, we want to do this deal because it's about the long term, not the short term, and then get all the shareholders to, to vote for it. I think that's it's it's a tough ask um, to try and push through, even though I personally think it's the right thing to do, is look at the amount of eyeballs that you're going to get and the value that those eyeballs could be bringing you long term. Just a quick one there miles just jumping in on the on on that um i i think it's even more than a tough ask i think it's an impossible ask is the truth um i th- i think obviously the the economic climate as it is at the moment but also because you know since 92 since the premier league was formed um we we've had one two now three you know effectively pay tv um operators query whether you know, Prime is a um, is a pay TV operator. It's not not to a degree, but it's sort of quasi. But regardless of that point, you know, the Premier League has been fed on subscription television model revenues. Um, now, the, the 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 question is whether you. It's almost like the same question the ECB has had, um, the the cricket board, English cricket board has had around not having the Ashes on. Um, terrestrial since t- the 2005 Ashes series, I think, um, you know, reach versus um, value to a degree and whether you can get both or otherwise. But I think in a profit maximising Premier League where um, a, a, the the clubs are going to be struggling financially or potentially struggling financially, um, I agree that I don't think there's going to be a short term view of let's put this out to, to terrestrial and I think you'd probably reduce that by more than um, more than a third but I think the question is whether there could be a package of games that uh, maybe were less attractive to a degree but still could hold um, audience on terrestrial television and I think that's something to, to consider it's also something <laughs> sorry go on Mas. 
was going to say the BBC viewing figures for the Premier yeah. League games have been huge. Same with the FA Cup or otherwise, my, yeah. Yeah, my, my partner gets very upset when EastEnders gets moved, but the rest of the country seems to be very happy with them being on there. So the question then, um, you know, becomes is, can you do both? But I agree. I think one of the, the difficult issues with the way that um, the Premier League um, does its um, tender rights process is, um, as Anand mentioned, them not being one central hub for everything um, and that these different siloed live exclusive products um, can be sold across platform. Um, and the the reason for that has actually been a competition law issue, which I don't need to go into for too much detail because that will bore the socks off everyone very quickly. But ideally, it was supposed to oh, be... Oh, come for... on, Daniel. Everybody loves the law. No, you're, you're wrong there, actually. I've begun to realise that's actually not the case. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, 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 point, the point generally there, I think, being is that... Um, the Premier League's model and tender product isn't process isn't necessarily going to change anytime soon, um, and I think as a result, then especially for the next three year tender, it'd be fascinating to see what happens in terms of values domestically, BT versus Sky versus Amazon and anybody else. Um, but again, if I just mentioned that last bit just very briefly before I stop on my tangent, which is, um, you know, Sky and BT's incentive and rationale for why they are purchasing rights is very different to that of Amazon. Couldn't be anything further um, from um, from the two parallel uh, exercises. And within the Sky BT um, com- uh, competition, um, you know, I think it seems like there's been some type of detente where as long as they both know that they can get some games, um, that they don't need to outbid themselves to, to that large extent, that almost becomes the, the important element. Now, um, non-domestically, that's where the big re- revenue rise has been for the Premier League in the last tender. Again, I, I probably I don't know enough about the the, the international market to, to see whether those figures can be sustained. But I think, as my, if Miles is right, which I don't doubt him for a second, um, there's going to be some um, yeah blood in the water. I think in the next couple of years, especially with um, you know the, the the Premier League clubs needing to needing to recoup as much revenue as they can. So, Anand, thanks so much for that question. We're we're sort of getting to the last couple of minutes. Um, um, I, well, I think we're more or less there at the hour. I don't know how anyone else has gotten any particular questions, but if I can just say on behalf of everybody, on uh, behalf of myself and Essen, um, thank you so much for to to Miles for Jordan um, to Anand for asking the question it's um it's great that so many people are uh, interested in listening into these conversations and um and and Essen, i'm not sure are we able to tell everyone what what we're going to be chatting about ne- next week perhaps or we're we gonna we're we gonna save that for another day i think we'll save it because schedules change all the time so i think um actually you know next week's is locked in so yeah dan go ahead i, I don't know you'll have to tell me <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, no, no. It's um, Jake Humphrey from BT Sports locked in for next week. So we'll be talking about journalism in sports and kind of how that space has evolved over the past few years, especially from a broadcasting and written point of view, because he has the High Performance Podcast as well, where he interviews a number of different athletes, entertainment industry people. So he's got a lot of background on that, on that side of things. So Jake Humphrey will be with us next week. Fantastic. Just don't tell him that I didn't know he was coming on. Yeah, no, sorry, that's my bad. I lost track of what this is. 
Brilliant. Well, thanks everyone for joining. Miles, Jordan, thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated and look forward to um, um, listening to lots more stuff on Clubhouse in the coming weeks. Thanks, thanks guys. everyone. Cool. Cheers, guys. Can I just say, guys, I mean, the discussion was really good and Daniel, you emceed it really, really well as well. I don't think, uh, you know, moderators or facilitators get enough credit sometimes and I've been in some rooms where it's been absolutely horrendous. So really, really nicely done. Thanks again. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast. Like, share, and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundee an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers, and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.